0: Length of the normal trial for a limited time, go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow up. Quick disclaimer the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com.
1: You're going to be afraid to buy your first property, and you should be. If you're not afraid, don't do it because you should be afraid, but do it. Whether it's multifamily, industrial, retail, it really doesn't matter. Do it. Be nervous. Be scared. What's the worst that can happen? If you're so sorry you bought it, you could sell it you
2: may lose a few dollars. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Todd Napola. Todd is joining us from Hollywood, Florida. He is the founder of Current Capital Real Estate Group, which is a full service management and leasing company that specializes in commercial, retail, and industrial spaces. Todd, thank you so much for joining us. And how are you today?
1: I'm great. Thanks, Ash, for having me. been looking forward to this conversation for a while now.
2: It's our pleasure to have you. Todd, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now?
1: Sure. I've been in the commercial real estate arena for about 25 years now. Bought my first property in 1998. My path has always been to hold real estate, so I still own that same property today. About seven, eight years after I bought my first property, I decided it was a good idea to start a property management company. So we built a management company and we do leasing and management redevelopment of centers. We've been doing it ever since
2: what was that first property?
1: First property was a warehouse. Believe it or not, it goes back to the RTC days when the banks were selling properties dirt cheap and there was a for sale sign out front and nobody wanted to buy properties. And it was a seven unit warehouse, 13,000 feet. And when I bought it, it was half empty. I'll never forget the day I bought it when I got to the closing table. Even the lawyer was laughing at me what a fool I was to buy this property. But I drained all my finances I had to buy the property and it's worked out pretty good.
2: Todd, what made you buy a warehouse instead of the traditional single family to duplex, the four unit and that progression?
1: It's a good question. I was driving by this property repeatedly and it was a good looking warehouse. So I said, that looks like a good one to buy. There was really no rhyme or reason why I went to warehouse over retail or over residential at that time, other than it had a for sale sign. So I called.
2: (laughs) Just a gut feeling, right?
1: Yeah. Awesome. Just a pretty building.
2: And from then on, what was your next purchase?
1: Well, from then, I probably made a logical move because this was before the days of you know, the internet giving you all the good feedback they give you on LoopNet and CoStar and all those guys. So I found a property about a mile away, similar use, and bought that one. So all my properties started to pinball in the same street and corridor because they were all near each other. So I got to know who was selling, who the owners were. And because I started to understand the market, I kept them all nearby. So the second was the same kind of a use, another warehouse property about, like I said, a little less than a mile away.
2: How many properties in were you before you picked up a retail or a different type of property?
1: I was probably three or four properties in. And the reason I changed is because one of the properties I bought was industrial, but we kind of used the front. We got like, I remember it was like a tax guy and whatever it was out front. So I kind of got pushed into retail a little only because they had these small little five, six, seven, hundred square foot units. So from there I went and bought a retail unit with 10 units.
2: And what was the numbers on that? Do you remember?
1: I do. I actually bought the center back then, it was 6,600 square feet, and I tried to buy from this seller who didn't have it on the market for ages, and finally she called me, it was on Thanksgiving Day, and she said, it's $100 a foot, and I'm not negotiating, and I said, I'll buy it, but it wasn't a great deal then, but I bought that property, I think it was 2003, and since then I've done absolutely nothing to it other than a coat of paint, and it's just been rolling and rolling and cash flowing. $100
2: a square foot in 2003, that does not sound like a great deal.
1: It wasn't a great deal, but it wasn't a horrible deal. But I loved it because for me getting into retail, it was 6,600 square feet total, 10 bays. So for me, I was more concerned with how much risk I was going to take. And I thought with 10 units, if three of them ever went vacant, four, I could still cover my expenses. So that's how I got involved in that guy. And I paid up a little bit for it. I'm glad I did because today I wouldn't sell for 300 a foot.
2: Was it fully leased when you bought it?
1: No, it had two vacancies, but it was pretty well leased.
2: Okay. And how do you go about filling vacancies back then?
1: Good old-fashioned way. Back then, I used to do my own leasing, so I put up a four-rent sign in the window. Believe it or not, those were the days we'd actually put things for rent in the local newspapers. We'd put an ad there, and that was it, just off signs and paper.
2: Pounding the pavement.
1: That's it.
2: Yeah. How has that changed over the years? What do you do now?
1: Well, now we have a whole team of leasing guys, so we've gotten really good at it. And now the market's very different, but no matter how much technology they come up with, it makes people more accessible. It allows us to send people site plans and surveys on the properties quickly. But to me, it still rolls back to the sign out by the street and the sign on the window. When people are generally looking for a space, they drive around the area they want to look for and they see your signs and they give you a call.
2: Yeah, it's amazing. I had a property where I had everything, giant banners, flyers handed out everywhere, phone calls bonuses to any realtors that can get me traction. And none of that worked until I put a little for rent sign right by the road. Mm-hmm. And we ended up filling the building through that. Yeah. So yeah, amazing. What do you say to all of our fellow real estate investors that are in the multifamily space and think retail industrials too hard, takes too much money, too big of a learning curve?
1: <laughs> I get that question a lot because i Purchased quite a few properties over the last two and a half decades. And everyone asked me the same thing. Multifamily is the best. Everybody needs a place to live. And I agree, it's great. In South Florida, multifamily is super, super competitive down here because you get a lot of guys that'll own it and operate it themselves. So it's hard to compete against those guys. I've never really gotten into multifamily for the sake of it's just not for me in a sense that I've always followed the path of the industrial and the retail guys. Now, what I like about the retail guys, the industrial guys are If they're not doing well for any reason, they generally just leave or give you back the keys. I find in the residential stories, I hear and have a lot of residential friends, and they'll tell me if someone has no money, they're not out looking for a new apartment, they'll ride out the eviction. I can count on my hands how many evictions I've had to follow through to the end in the last 10, 15 years because you don't really come across that problem. I don't really think it's any different barrier to get into the game. I think a lot of people think of a residential unit, in my opinion, that they're going to buy it kind of like buying a house. And it's really not. That's not the way the banks underwrite them anymore. So it's basically the same rules to get into both.
2: I love that you mentioned the evictions. I had an attorney draft just one eviction notice in ten years. And that was really just to slap the tenant around a little bit and get them to straighten up.
0: Yeah.
2: And they did. So yeah, I love that. You mentioned banks. What's the difference? When somebody goes to buy a warehouse or a strip center, how's that different than multifamily?
1: Well, Again, I'm not an expert in multifamily, so I can only go off of what I kind of know. But basically, it's the same thing nowadays. The deals that we do, we generally go to a local community bank. And whether it's national or not, it's not the, the difference. But they all basically want to see you come about 30% down. And I don't know that that really changes so much for multifamily because they don't want to see you have the risk that people used to have going back 10, 15 years ago where you could buy it with no money down or walk away with checks to closing. you got to have skin in the game. So if they're going to underwrite your deal, they're going to carve it up. They're not even going to worry about today's interest rates. When they're underwriting my deals now, they're underwriting them as if the interest rate's 6% because they got to know I can carry this going forward as rates go up. So it's the same for either side, but ultimately, like I tell everybody, whatever makes you happier. I prefer enjoying dealing with businesses much more than I do with residential tenants. I think it's easier. It's nicer. So that's what I've stuck to. But truthfully, as long as you're in the game, as you very well know, as long as you're buying real estate, you're in the right arena.
2: Todd, there's a retail apocalypse coming. Why would you buy retail right now? (laughs) I've heard this quite a few times.
1: (laughs) I've heard that Amazon's going to end everything and kill everybody. And I think the obituary is a little bit too early. There's always a repurposing of retail. And for sure, in Florida and our state, there's a lot of retail per person. But at the end of the day, I'm already seeing a lot of these old centers getting repurposed They're bulldozing some of it, putting up apartment buildings. The kind of stuff that we move into, I'm not buying the big 50,000 square foot big boxes that could hurt us. I'm buying the stuff that has your chiropractor, your dentist, your podiatrist, your tax office, your florist, your restaurant, so on and so forth. I'm not saying anything is Amazon proof or internet proof, but they're resilient. And these guys are going to stay. And the truth is we're a very social society. People don't want to order everything online. So I don't Uh, buy into the apocalypse.
2: (laughs) I totally agree with you. And I think COVID really showed us that those neighborhood retail centers are thriving Because people now want to stay close to home. They're not driving 30 minutes to go to downtown Miami or Lauderdale or Cincinnati. They want to go to their suburban downtown where it's a cool walkable vibe. The pizza guy, the deli, the little bar, the watering hole. And like you mentioned, the chiropractor, the insurance guy. Those are not going away, in my opinion, as well. So thank you for sharing that. Industrial. So what's the barriers to entry on that?
1: I think it's the same thing. If there's any sector that's been almost impossible to buy in the last two years, it has been industrial. We personally bought around just over 500,000 square feet of retail space in the last two years since January, 2020. And we bought 10,000 square feet of industrial. It's all you could get. I mean, I got one building. It's such a competitive market now, and especially the small bay stuff. We specialize in the, say, 1,200 square feet to about 10,000 square foot bays. And it's just hot. Everybody wants to get into it right now. So the barrier to get in is a lot of patience and you better be willing to pay up because it's just not going to make sense going in. You're not going to get a good deal. You're not going to get a great cap rate. So you have to believe in it for the long haul.
2: Todd, what kind of cash on cash returns do you typically see?
1: It depends on the deals. A lot of times people ask me what the return is when I'm buying a property. And truthfully, I'm not as interested because I get packages from every brokerage company known nationwide and they give you these beautiful formas. And the truth is, I even tell it to the broker. So no disrespect. I kind of throw it in the garbage because I'm not interested in what they tell me I could do. I have to know, so I'm looking for properties that have upside potential. So last year in September, I bought one, and it was eighty-five thousand square feet. And the truth was, it was probably about a three cap, but a third of the units were vacant at the time, so we had to go lease them up. And we knew what we had to do. It was at a country owner, so the return I get it when I buy them isn't as important as what I think I'll get, but. Right now, at this market, we're still looking for 12, 13, 14% cash on cash carries when we have them stabilized, not at purchase.
2: Yeah. And then in terms of financing, is it a challenge to have a property finance that has a high vacancy?
1: It gets more challenging for some people. We have the luxury of a big track record. So I always buy all my properties with 30 to 35% down. So I'm always putting a lot of skin in the game. A lot of times I'll work with banks where they'll do holdbacks, I'll put up maybe even another 10%. And when I hit a hurdle and I rent out some of these units, they'll release some money back to me. So I've always found the banks will work with you if you have a proven remedy to how to solve the problem. And for the most part, the number one thing is the market. So if you're buying a property on one side of the street with 50% vacancies and across the street, everything is full, they know you're going to get it full. But if the whole area is wide, that would probably scare them. But I haven't had a problem with any banks, knock on wood.
2: And Todd, somebody that is wanting to start out with a small neighborhood strip center, that has no track record, how should they approach a lender and what type of lender should they approach? Uh,
1: this is a great question Ash, because that's probably one of the most common questions that people ask me all the time. I think it's the greatest thing to get in, but people have to realize first off is that a lot of people deal with, say, Bank of America or a Wells Fargo or a TD Bank, and those banks are just too massive to talk to you and you're just not important to them. You got to bring it down a notch and you got to go to your local regional bank, the smaller banks, These are the guys that want to lend to you because they may want your business account. They may want your checking account, but they're more human. And I'm not insulting Bank of America. I use them, but I have no loans from Bank of America. They're just massive. They're designed for the blackstones of the world. So you got to work with the smaller bank. The second thing is you're going to have to put some money down. I've read the books. I've heard all the stories about buying real estate with no money down. If you do that, you hit one speed bump, it won't be your property anymore. So you got to put some money down. But I think it's the greatest thing to get in the game and go talk to your local banks. And like I said, I think you can get in with good credit with about 30% down, no problem on most of these deals and just get started.
2: Should they talk to the lenders before they find a property or after?
1: You could always talk to a bank. There's really no reason to talk to them until you have a deal. It's kind of like you have nothing for them. So you may not get the attention you want from the bank officer because you're telling what potentially you may have one day down the road. And that doesn't really excite them as much as a deal. What I can tell you is there's a bank out there, there's a lender out there for everybody. And if it's your first deal, I tell everybody, you got to do whatever it takes. I drained my accounts down to pennies to buy my first property. People ask me, should they use a credit card? You should use any kind of debt you could get, whether it's from friends and families, credit lines, anything to get your first property. Because like anything else, once you own it, it's a lot easier to refinance it and easier to buy the second and third and fourth. You just got to get in.
2: That's great advice. And unlike multifamily, relationships with lenders is so important with commercial properties it's not a commodity as much as it is the banks are usually keeping the loans on their books so they have to believe yeah. in you and when you approach them having a great narrative helps as well tell them Absolutely. your turnaround story tell them what your intentions are and uh, really get them excited about that so yeah, 100%. great great advice So you don't have to put down 35% on deals. Do you choose to do that? Generally speaking, the bank wants
1: 25% down. We like a nice cushion. I've lived through everything from, I guess, now wars and pandemics and savings and loan crisis. So I've seen it all. And I'm a big fan of studying history. And if you look at history of real estate, if you can hold on to your real estate, no matter what the market does, you'll be fine. You just have to have the staying power. What got a lot of people in a lot of trouble back in 08 and 09 was they just didn't have any staying power and they were too overleveraged. Then they quit and walked away. And a lot of people that I know, I wasn't one of them, but a lot of people just gave the keys back, so to speak, and walked away from their properties. Only the two years later, those properties were worth a lot more money. So I sleep well at night putting a little bit more money down on my properties and having them leverage comfortably.
0: We'll get back to the show with a first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but... Investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self storage investing. Visit passiveinvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's passiveinvesting.com forward slash red flags.
2: Todd, do you get a lower interest rate by putting down a higher amount?
1: Yes. If
2: you don't mind, I get a lower
1: interest rate and lower recourse. Yes.
2: What are your typical rates right now?
1: I've been borrowing for the last six months between three and a half and three seventy okay, five. Five okay. years. fixed okay.
2: Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, so that shows it's going to
1: probably, probably change today, thanks to the Fed. But we are <laughs> all go a little higher.
2: <laughs> yeah, and then you said it limits your recourse. Are these non-recourse, full recourse, or something in between?
1: Anytime you deal with a local lender like these, you're going to get recourse. So what we generally try to do is we buy a property. We'll get it from a local lender. Like you said, these guys keep their loans on the books. They don't want you to have recourse just because they don't trust the property. They just want to make sure they got you. If there's ever a problem that they have a little bit of an angle with you and that's the recourse. So you're always going to sign a recourse. So the question is how much it could be a hundred percent recourse. Well, we all know the property is never going to zero, but you don't want that on your balance sheet. So we always negotiate down with the banks that says, well, if I put 35% down, let me just carry the next, say 20% or 30% of the recourse. So my balance sheet isn't impacted by it, which does make a difference.
2: I did not know that was an option. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Good to know. Everything I have is full recourse. Yeah. yeah. How do you find deals?
1: I spend hours every single day looking for deals and whether it's going on co-stars or whether it's just cold calling people, whatever it may be, I'm always hunting for deals. I give you my secret that I find that it pays to be nice to every single broker, especially ones that don't have what you want because they're the ones who may deliver it to you one day. And I'm doing a deal right now. We're closing on two properties from one broker. I never even met the guy. He called me over the phone, tried to buy one of my properties. I talked to him for 20 minutes. And then he called me with an off-market deal a few weeks later. So if you're nice to brokers, they're going to feed you a lot of deals. It definitely helps when you have some proof that you could close deals because once they know you're a real buyer, they'll go to you before they'll just go to the market. But ultimately, you got to get out there and search. and You got to make offers. I'll tell you too. We bought a small property in January. And the seller wanted $3.5 million for the property, and it just wasn't worth it. So I offered him two. And most people said, how do you offer $2 million on a $3.5 million property? Because he counted it 2.5. And we settled at $2,275. But most people won't even make the offer. It's just a piece of paper in LOI. Send them out. Give it a shot.
2: Do you always do LOIs, or do you just try to go right under contract?
1: I generally do an LOI first, especially in the commercial arena, because... We use the far bar contracts, which are the easiest ones for the most part, but then you got to start getting into the contract. You have to start getting into a stop of letters and liens and code violations. So just to find out if we're going to make a deal, I have a template for an LOI. I send it out. It's easy. And you'll find out if you have some traction before I go through the whole trouble putting together a contract or having my lawyer do it. One piece of paper, it's not binding, but like I said, you'll find out if a guy's a player and you got a deal.
2: What percentage of your deals come from Brokers.
1: 75 to 80% of deals become from brokers. Every now and then we'll find an off market on our own.
2: How do you find those?
1: From word of mouth, we've actually got some properties. We just bought a property last year from a seller that knew we bought it from someone else. So he said, I know you bought a property from my friend. Are you interested? And we've been in this for a long time. So we do get a lot of calls and we have a big company. So we have the privilege of that coming in now. When I started, that would never have happened, of course. That's a little bit of luck we have now.
2: (laughs) I'll share one of my best kept secrets. I don't keep it. I share it with everybody, but finding commercial deals listed by residential realtors or by, I'm going to call them mom and pop brokers or unsophisticated commercial brokers. We've literally had brokers that had $5 million strip centers that they advertised only on their own website. That was like a homemade website, right? They didn't put it on CoStar, LoopNet. And then these residential realtors it seems, man, they get excited when somebody brings them a commercial deal. They slap it up on the MLS, mispriced often, and you get some great deals that way. Have you done that?
1: You are 100% <laughs> right because you just hurt my stomach because there was a beautiful center. It was a small center right by our office. And someone said, hey, do you see that center is for sale? And I looked it up. by I was at my computer. I said, that's not for sale. They said, I think it is. I drove there. It was a residential realtor and put up a for sale sign. And it sold the center that should have sold at 200 bucks a foot. Asking price was 130 a foot. I was like, oh my God. But just as you said, they didn't even advertise it.
2: So I constantly scour residential MLSs when they allow you to search by commercial property. Yeah. Great way to find deals.
1: That's a great tip.
2: Yeah. Are you slowing down at all in your purchases knowing that we've had a long run of a great economy?
1: No. Again, we have a little bit of a luxury being in South Florida. The market has been booming down here, but our model, we don't buy the class A brand new grocery anchored centers. We buy value add centers. So we're just buying centers. And because we don't sell them, we ultimately look to increase the NOIs and refinance them and cash out. So because we do that, we keep the real estate forever. So I think we have a long horizon ahead of us.
2: And Todd, you've got a big built out company now. What was your first
1: hire? My first hire, I remember it to this day, I started the company by myself. When I finally got to get to the point where I was going to hire, help, I hired a guy, his name was, I still remember his name, was Greg King, was a fantastic guy. And between Greg and I, we answered the phones, we collected rents, we painted buildings, we did everything we had to do together. And then from Greg King, I remember going back to, oh a boy, a long time ago, we hired a girl to come be the receptionist. And we got to a receptionist, I thought I made it. I said, someone's actually going to answer the phone for me. This is great. And let me tell you, it was that small position, which makes a huge difference because not answering the phones, you have a lot more free time. And from there, we continue to grow and grow and then bring on leasing agents, managers, and the rest is where we are today.
2: What would your advice be to that one person shop who wants to scale?
1: You got to do it. When I first opened my office, I tell a lot of people this story. I started by myself and I rented, I think it was seven or 800 square feet. I went and I bought office desks. I went to Dell back then online and I bought, I don't know, it was like six, seven computers. I set everything up with chairs, but it was just me. And I always tell the story that a good friend of mine, and it's always your good friends will give you the really fun advice. He walked in after I signed the three-year lease. I bought all this furniture and computers. I bought a phone system. I had the office. And he said, are you expecting someone to come here? And I was like, oh, did I make a big mistake? I was like, this is not good. And you know, it makes you work harder. But every time we've spent the money to bring people on board, it's always worked out and been a blessing. So you got to take the chance and hire people. They'll really pay you back.
2: I love that story. You know, most people hire people, they work out of their living room, their kitchen, and then they get the office. I love that you just went all in, got the computers, the desks. <laughs> What's a deal that you lost money on and what was your lesson learned?
1: It's a great question. I'm going to answer maybe just a tiny bit different. The deal I learned the most on that cost me the most money was probably around 1999 or 2000. There was a seller out of Israel selling an enterprise rental car lot on a corner, a beautiful corner. And they wanted $250,000. And let us see how well I remember this deal. We settled at 225, and back then sellers all wanted to finance the deals. They wanted 10% down and they wanted, I think, back then like 8% interest, which was a good interest rate back then. And we kind of had a deal. And at the last minute, the seller got cute, in my opinion, and said, nah, I want 235 or no deal. And because I was young, stupid, and foolish, I said, "I'm not, we agreed at 225. I'm not paying 235. So I lost the deal. Now, bear in mind, that would have cost me an additional $1,000 down because they were financing it. A few months later, I realized I might have made a mistake after the property's been sold. I get the luxury of driving by this property almost every day on my way home. And here we are. I don't think the property's worth a penny less than a million five. So $1,000 cost me a million plus. But when you're young, you don't realize you have your ego and you have your beliefs, but sometimes you got to be flexible and compromise. So it's been the greatest lesson. I've told that story a million times to everybody that don't be stuck. If a deal is a deal, it could still be a deal if someone moves the needle a little bit, but it cost me a lot.
2: (laughs) And are you from New Jersey or New York?
1: Staten Island, New York.
2: I grew up in Jersey, so I get that mindset. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Todd, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? The best
1: advice I can give anybody is you're going to be afraid to buy your first property and you should be. If you're not afraid, don't do it because you should be afraid, but do it. Whether it's multifamily, industrial, retail, it really doesn't matter. Do it. Be nervous. Be scared. What's the worst that can happen? If you're so sorry, you bought it, you could sell it. You may lose a few dollars, but if you're right, and you're following the path of everybody else who's been in real estate, and very few people ever tell you it's a bad deal, if you're right, it'll multiply and give you the best retirement fund of your life. It'll let you sleep well at night, and it'll certainly put your kids through college and take care of all those burdens of worrying about a day-to-day job. So listening to guys like you, Ash, is fantastic because it kind of bridges the gap where they're nervous, but you're going to be scared, but you got to do it. And that's what they have people like you to help them for.
2: Amazing advice. Thank you. Todd, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? I'm ready. All right, let's do it. (laughs) Todd, what's the best ever book you recently read?
1: I just finished two books ago, a great book. And it's similar to what we just said by Gerald Hines, the Hines Corporation. And he's the founder of Hines. And if you know much about them, they're the biggest real estate company out there today. And it was called Raising the Bar by Gerald Hines. And it's the story how this guy, just like you said, how I started with an office, some people started in a house. He started in his house and one building at a time, one deal at a time. He kept on growing and growing and growing. And now Heinz is, I believe, the largest private real estate company in the world. We talked; I think get 50, 60 billion in assets right now that they own and started one deal at a time. So what I loved about the book, and I'm a big reader, is he doesn't just tell you how great it's been, how successful he was. He tells you how hard it was and all the nights of losing sleep. And when there was a tornado and he had to go out and travel across the country to go to a building. And then he talks about all the things he does to give back and how he works with people. And he talks about his hobbies and his family. And how he had to give this company and hand it off to his son, which is not easy to do. But he did it. And obviously, his son's doing a great job now, too. But that is by far the best book I've read in the last two months.
2: That's going on my list. Thank you for sharing that. You're going to love it. (laughs) Todd, what's the best ever way you like to give back?
1: I've learned a lot of lessons in giving back. And I've come to a point where I really enjoy giving back. So I'm less the guy who has, say, the time. My brother's a massive guy with time. What I like to do is bring people into the office. So I really want to see more people get involved in commercial real estate, again, any sector in it. So we have a pretty good internship program in my office where we bring in a bunch of high school and college kids in the summer. And we pay them. And we pay them very well because if they're going to show up, they should get paid. And I don't use my interns as people to answer the phone or just run an errand. I take them with me. I put my property manager. It's more of a teaching thing. I always have people coming in the office and spend time with them. I always take a phone call from people. And I will plug it now because people know I just finished writing a book, which is coming out in about two months, and my way of giving back is 100% of the proceeds from the book are going to go to charity. I just want people to get anything they can out of me and learn this game. Very rewarding to see people learn.
2: Tell me what the book is called.
1: Well, that we're still working on. Okay, that's the hardest part, of, right? The tentative part, you know, that, it actually is the hardest <laughs> part. That and getting some pictures, but it's most likely to be called, if we can get it, it's called Getting Real on Commercial Real Estate by Todd Napola, and... We have the book done. It's in publishing now. So we're getting that done and getting your artwork done. And it's my first book, but I felt here's the way I could give back. And I really want to see, I have two daughters with teenage daughters. I look to see more women get involved in commercial real estate. I know a lot of women I meet, they kind of think that commercials for men and residential is for women. And it's not, it's a great business for them. And I'm looking to see more minorities get involved. So we got to work with these groups and try and help them as much as we can. So that's why the book is going to be for charity. I won't make a penny off it and those are the ways I like to give back by seeing others succeed.
2: That's incredible. I'm sure you know Beth Azor. Yes. One of the savages in this industry.
1: Beth is great. I know it's your lightning round, but I just tell you real funny. Beth tried to sell the shopping center and he brought it to me. And I said, wait, wait, is Beth center? I said, I'm not even interested because Beth has gotten every penny out of the center. If Beth <laughs> is selling it, it's no good anymore. She's that good. <laughs> She's that good. She's fantastic.
2: Todd, Todd, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you?
1: Anyone can, I'll tell you the truth. You can call me. You can email me. We're at currentcapitalgroup.com. My phone number is 954-966-8181. I'm todd at cc-reg.com. Instagram, life according to Todd. Any way you want to get me, get me. But if you have a real question, you have something you want to know, I'm happy to help you. I have people come to the office probably two, three times a month. Just come here and ask some questions. If you want to meet a bank or you want to have a question, I'll sit down with you, have a cup of coffee and help just about anybody.
2: You're an amazing guy. Thank you. And thank, thank you for you. being on the show and sharing your 25 year journey from that first warehouse to what you've accomplished today. Can't thank you enough for sharing all of that with us.
1: And I thank you, Ash. You get to the people. It's fantastic. The time you devote to this, I mean, it's fantastic. So thank you for having me.
2: Best ever listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share the podcast with someone you think will benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best-ever day.